you know, how do we take care of our neighbor? How do we how do we live our faith in a way that Jesus would have wanted us to live it? And that's taking not just having faith in God, but taking care of God's people. Welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast, a spirit-centered podcast. Join us each week for a conversation on faith, current events, and everything in between. Hey folks, and welcome to The Spirit is Lit. This week, our podcast, uh, we have a special guest. Her name is Sister Terry. She was actually my um, New Testament professor at Loyola University, New Orleans. Um, this is a really great conversation. Um, we talked about scripture. We talked about Jesus. Um, and she actually, um, I asked her, and she brought back to light um, one of the... Uh, Really cool interpretations that I remember to this day. Um, it's uh, one of those uh, scripture interpretations you hear over and over, and you know uh, it's called it's the turn the other cheek interpretation. Um, but she offers a, a a sort of different interpretation of what we might think that means, um, and she brings in kind of the social, uh, cultural, historical context, which is uh, which I thought was really awesome. So um, enjoy the uh, the conversation. Uh, let's get things rolling. Sister Terry, welcome to the podcast. It's go, so good to have you. Um, just to, to kind of give our, our listeners an idea of uh, of uh, who who are you? So you know, um, can you tell folks about uh, who uh, who is Sister Terry and kind of where you got how you got to where you are today? Mm, okay, thanks, Jacob. It's so great to see you again. After so many years, we first met at Loyola. So I uh, I'm a Sister of Mercy, and um, so my community is, is based out of Silver Spring or near Washington, D.C., but we've, we were founded in Ireland uh, at the turn of the century. And our commitment is to works of, just, of justice, works of mercy. And how I ended up getting where I am today has a lot to do with an inheritance. My great aunt, when she died, left me a Bible a family Bible, one of these huge Bibles. And I just remember going, wow, I love books, but this is the biggest book I ever saw. <laughs> I was a child at the time and I opened it up and started reading it and couldn't put it down. I read it from front cover to back cover. It took me a few weeks, you know, as a kid, but I was completely fascinated. I was fascinated by the stories, fascinated by things that I had heard in church, but also the stories I hadn't heard in church that I was reading. And then really what happened from that is I decided I wanted to study the Bible. I wanted to somehow have a future where I would be able to teach Bible. So I joined the Sisters of Mercy and told the sisters, you know, I really want to teach the Bible. I want to learn the Bible. And so uh, one of the things that we did was we would go take theology and Bible courses at St. Louis University in St. Louis. So with the Jesuits. And I remember sitting there with uh, Father J.J. Muller and in the class, and he started talking about Adam and Eve and that Adam and Eve were not real human people, <laughs> that they were a story. And I just remember being shocked because my perspective of the Bible as a child was it's very literal, it's a history book. And that just intrigued me even more. It was like, there's a lot I don't understand about the Bible. So after I did sort of, beginning graduate level work, I asked the sisters if I could go on for an MA. So I went to Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and started taking Bible 
courses there. And that included a study abroad. So I was able to go and study the Bible in the lands of the Bible. And boy, Jacob, talk about interesting. <laughs> I, I had no idea how fascinating even the land of the Bible was. So that's what got me interested in the social and cultural context. And finally, I went on and said, uh, well, actually, my thesis director said to me, would you consider a PhD? And I remember thinking, uh, I don't think I'm of that caliber. And she said, oh, yes, you are. So I asked the community if I could go for my PhD, and I did. Uh, they said yes. So I went to Texas Christian University, where I attended Bright Divinity School. And that, that began my teaching career in uh, biblical studies. Then I got hired by Loyola in 2009 and have been here for the last 11 years. So. Oh, that's awesome. Um, kind of what, um, what you mentioned in terms of like, I didn't know that you were gifted a Bible. It almost kind of reminds me of Ignatius and like when he was um, uh, parallel, but not like exactly, but like, you know, when like the story of when he was kind of, I guess, locked up, so to speak, and he, he found the books of the saints and he just fell in love. Um, but like yeah. with all of your, your studies, um, how has this impacted uh, your faith and your relationship with God as like maybe you learn more and more about God? Oh, okay. This is a really good question, Jacob. And I, I had to really think about, you know, how do I answer this question? Every time I go in front of my students, I have to, to answer this question. And, and it's good for me to revisit how my own faith journey happened and how I got impacted by biblical studies. So as a child, as a young adult, I very much had a very literalist understanding of biblical literature. And that would be true of faith doctrine as well. You know, I've just had a very literalist, here's the question, here's the answer. Here's the question, here's the answer kind of thing. And what began to happen for me is I started to understand the Bible and faith as an interpreted experience. So when I read the Bible, I'm reading the Bible through the interpreted lens of the people that are writing the scripture. And the same is, the same occurs in our own faith journey. We interpret our faith journey. And so what began to happen for me is I began to see God more as a mystery and be okay with that, that, that there's not these neat pat little answers to everything about who God is and what God is, that sometimes we have to live with the mystery of God. Um, but I also began to see God doesn't, that God should not be contained within a Bible box. And I, I've said that to my students a lot, you know, God is not in a Bible box. God is more than the Bible. So I began to experience God in different ways. Um, I guess I would say that my faith came to center more on loving God and loving others and loving myself, really getting at the essence of what faith is rather than get caught up, um, <clears throat> caught up in the periphery or caught up in the, the set and pet answers. And I started to experience God in the marginal places and the gray spaces. Awesome. So then would it be, um, I don't know, gay space based off of kind of what you're saying, would it be safe to assume that like, um, I guess the more you study, the more you learn, I guess the more you experience, the more maybe even questions of God, the more mystery there is of God. Oh, yeah. So yes, because, um, yeah, and what happens for me as a sister is the more I've journeyed with different people in their, in their own life journeys, 
I've worked, for example, with people living in, in prison, spending their life in prison. I've worked with people living on the street. I've worked with gay and lesbian um, students. So I, I started meeting people in different walks of life and seeing that if, if I could feel this love and compassion and empathy for these different groups of people, how much more um, can God or does God? And so whenever my faith came in conflict, you know, I would uh, come into a church teaching that I didn't quite agree with because I believed in the love of God. It freed me a little more to say, it's okay. And I think that's what Pope Francis really teaches us today. Have mercy, have compassion, have love, and don't get caught up in the legalities. Uh, so it really freed me in that, in that I, I began to see God as much broader and much deeper. No, I love that. Um, and I think I love that you mentioned Pope Francis, too, because, uh, um, you know, Pope Francis is like the first of many of but for, for, I guess, maybe for um, this next question that I want to ask is like Pope Francis is the first um, Latin American Pope. Um, but for centuries, you know, we've had this um, kind of what you're talking about. Um, a lot of maybe um, theology coming from one general um, global hemisphere, whatever, so to speak, location. Um, but now we have Pope Francis who's giving like a, a, a different um he's shaking things up because he's giving things from a different lens, so to speak, um, from his, you know, Latin American roots where he's, where he's spent a lot of his time. So I, I guess that leads me to my question is like, how has, you know, the general, maybe mainstream Christian understanding of Jesus uh, changed over time, maybe based on this uh, one particular lens over the court? I don't know. How has it changed over time? Maybe for better, or for worse, um, maybe because it's been, oh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's, um, well, Jacob, I mean, I think there's, there's different strands of Christians, I guess, for the better way of putting it, it's a lot more complex than a simple answer. But uh, in my experience, there are there are the Christians who really in the last 150 years, have intensified this idea of the Lord as their personal Savior. Catholics do it through the Mass, you know, if you go to Mass, then uh, you're, you're living your faith and you're, you're being a good Catholic. If you're evangelical, you have declared Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, so you're being faithful. And I think what has happened with some of that intensification of where it becomes more about your faith, whenever you have strands of Christianity that focus more on faith rather than faith and works, then what tends to happen is this opening the door to prosperity gospel, this idea that all right, I'm in a special relationship with God, so I'm going to get favors in return. Uh, so if I have strong faith, God's going to give me wealth. Uh, God's going to give me health. God's going to take care of me. And for some strains of Christianity, there's this lack of understanding or that, that faith, you have to be careful because faith that is so focused on a relationship between you and God can sometimes leave out the care of others. It can get misfocused and people get into a bubble. So I see a lot of that happening today where people have a Christianity that's very much a bubble. Uh, you take care of your own, you take care of your own bubble, your own family. Um, and without an understanding that how our faith, when we live it in a bubble can affect other people. 
So like the prosperity gospel, for example, if, if you believe God's going to give you riches because you have faith in God, then do you understand that wealth comes on the backs of the poor? There's not a way to get rich without it coming on the backs of someone else. So then, so there's a strand of Christianity that's a very bubble-like um, focus. And then there's a strand of Christianity, and, and of course I'm simplifying this, but there's a strand of Christianity that's very focused on social justice. You know, how do we take care of our neighbor? How do we, how do we live our faith in a way that Jesus would have wanted us to live it? And that's taking, not just having faith in God, but taking care of God's people. So how has Jesus changed over time? I think for some, this idea that Jesus is, is a personal, uh, is a personal relationship. I think that that has led to this, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's, I think it's led to a very narrow understanding of Jesus versus those who are understanding Jesus within the context of his own day and how he spoke uh, on issues of social justice. So is it the image of Jesus with the, sh the, the sweet little lamb sitting on his lap and loving, all loving and sweet? You know, the gentle, the gentle shepherd on a sweet-eyed ass, I say. Is it that image of Jesus that we have? Because if we do, then it, it becomes too soft. It becomes such a soft, um, gentle way of being in relation with God without challenging us. Or is the image that we have of Jesus one who can who can get fired up in the streets for the things that are going on? Who can get this prophetic voice um, loudly spoken in the street about how people are being treated? So really, it depends on the Christians and their images of Jesus. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but over time, I mean, I still see those two strands. They're just intensifying is what, what I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So then I guess how is, um, how in your experience as a professor, how do you break down some, because, you know, a lot of within some of those strands, the strand is um, unhealthy. So how do you break down unhealthy understandings of God, but also being sensitive and um, to an individual's faith development? Right. Okay. Yeah. So how do we, how do you hold people with wherever their background, because people are being taught, they're being brought into a certain strand by those that come before them. So how do we help them see differently or break open how they're seeing? Um, well, one of the things that I do for my students is talk about the, the stages of faith development. Because when you have, when you're at a certain stage of faith development and we start quite raising questions that uh, shake that up or break it apart, so to speak, then you have to have a step to go to. What's the next step? And so I like to talk about the stages of faith development. So if we start talking about um, shifting from a literalist understanding of the Bible, for example, or this image of God as an old man in the sky, and we start really looking at what is, where do we go? How do we start answering questions that move us into metaphoric language that we can only talk about God in metaphors. We can't really talk outside the human language. Uh, so the faith, I, I want to give students um, a place to go. You know, it's like, okay, this is why, this is where I'm at. And to be able to identify where you're at and then say, where do I want to go to in my faith development? 
And the other thing I do is really challenge in as gentle ways I can, the cl old cliches that we get told, you know, these cliches, like God doesn't give, give us something we can't handle or that God, like I'll give you an example. So, and I've heard this often. So when someone loses someone they love, a, a typical reply that person hears is, well, God can't give you anything you can't handle. And we break that open and say, well, what does it mean that God can't give you? Are you saying that God has taken your loved one because you can handle it? So to really start to break open how we see these cliches and how they, how they affect how we image God. Another one that I hear quite a bit is the one about um, when someone loses someone they love, they hear this reply, well, God needed them more. Really? God needs that person more than you do? That, that God needs that child more than the mother does? So it just it's more of just break open how you're looking at this. Sometimes the cliches give us comfort, but if you really break them open, you probably don't want to be associated with an image of God like that. A God who takes people away from people that they love. No. So how do you shift that? So one way of shifting that is, is to say, you know, um, so I've lost someone dear to me and God, I need your support through this. It's a different way of looking at it than to say, God, you took the one I love. You better give me the shit through this. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's so like it's just helping people see differently. And so... Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and like being able to process things in a healthy way. Um, the sister, you mentioned, uh, you've already mentioned about like caring for other people um, as a part of, you know, our faith and looking at beyond ourselves, like as, as a whole. So where does, um, and like, in terms of, that reminds me of like, uh, of caring for others in terms of social justice, but where does, so where do we, where can we find that like within a, a biblical context, social justice? Oh, the social justice, but for... Well, Luke, so in the gospel of Luke chapter 10, we hear this love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's one essence of what social justice is about. Another is Matthew 7, where it says, do to others whatever you want them to do for you. Uh, the works of mercy in Matthew 25, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. And then, of course, the, the very much grounded prophetic voice that we find in the Hebrew Bible, where we're, we're challenged to care for the most vulnerable in society, the widow, the orphan, the stranger in the land, which is migrants and refugees. The Bible calls them alien residents, but or resident aliens, but I really don't like that language. It's a terrible translation, aliens. Um, and to care for the poor. And we find that in Deuteronomy, we find it in Psalms. Uh, Malachi, the book of Malachi, uh, many of the prophets address, you know, this caring for the vulnerable among us. So, and is there a difference between, um, I guess, uh, maybe, I mean, you could, maybe you could explain the difference between, I guess, because they seem both seem to be good things, but like between like charity and justice, you know, like giving of our time, maybe and giving like certain structural things. Oh, so the difference between charity and love, um, maybe. Okay, so charity, this this idea that we give, um, we give 
what we have to help someone. Uh, that's that idea of charity is important in, in the Bible. They call that tithing. But there's also another aspect, and that is loving, and that is listening, and it's empowering. It's seeing what is the systemic problem that's keeping someone where they, they need to be given charity. What, what are we doing to keep people down um, so that we can feel good about giving them something? How do we address that problem? So love really looks at the root causes and tries to address the root causes, where charity just addresses the immediate problem, the immediate need, rather. Um, and we really need both. Definitely. It reminds me of uh, kind of all this uh, social justice talk. It reminds me of uh, one of the scripture uh, uh, passages that I still remember to this day from your class. It was the, um, it's one of the famous ones, turn the other cheek. Um, and it, it blew my mind. It's like, um, that actually makes sense. Maybe it wasn't as healthy the way that I understood it. Um, could you maybe describe that, Sister Terry? Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's a little difficult to do without you seeing my actions, but let me see if I can describe it in a way you can hear this in words. The first thing that we need to, to look at is what is the expected reaction? Now, this turn the other cheek dictum occurs in both Matthew and Luke, but Luke doesn't give us enough detail. So I'm going to focus on Matthew because it gives more detail to what's, what's actually being said here. So what is the expectation? Now, Matthew talks about uh, the, the Greek word here is rapidso, which means to, to strike with an open hand. And Matthew says that if someone, the Matthew and Jesus, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, which is a backhand. So if somebody backhands you across the face, what, what you're normally expected to do, because if you would get a backhand slap, you are automatically presumed to be of lower status or no status. So the person backhanding you has higher status, more power, okay? So when they backhand you, your expected response is to take the humiliation. Take that humiliation. That's the expected response. But Jesus said, oh, no. Oh, no, you stand up and you stand tall with your honor. I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. You stand tall with your honor and you turn the other cheek. Now, what is happening here? Well, one, it's not what's expected. Two, if a person stands up and offers their cheek, the other cheek, what they're saying by offering the left cheek is they're, they're saying, I, I, I challenge you to hit me as you would an equal. I challenge you to hit me as you would an equal. Hitting on that side of the face in antiquity was understood to, to grant this person, they were being treated as equal. All right. But the thing we have to keep in mind is by offering the cheek, you're making a challenge. You're saying, I am going to reclaim my honor, and I'm challenging you to, you, you to your honor. So I'm challenging you to go ahead and hit me. Now, the person on the other end is going to have two choices to make, strike or not to strike. If they strike, they're going to look despicable because... They're returning a, a second hit and they're not, this person has not hit them. 
So they're going to be seen as despicable. But if the person doesn't strike, he leaves the challenge unanswered and therefore his honor is affected. So I don't know if I've made that clear, but what happens is you put the person between a rock and a hard place. If he strikes, he loses honor. If he doesn't strike, he loses honor. And all of this happens in a public forum. But to understand this, we have to know the two dictums that come after it. Because Matthew, the Matthew and Jesus gives us another dictum right behind this one. He says, if you go into a court, and again, this very public forum, so you got all these people witnessing this. If you go into a court and someone demands that you give your cloak, then give them the cloak, but give them your garment as well. Now, the person who both, well, the person who's standing there with the cloak and the garment of the person that has just given it to him is going to look pretty ridiculous because the person is standing in front of them naked. That's essentially what's going on. It focuses the attention on the person that's doing the aggression, whether they're slapping or whether they're stripping someone naked. It's making them look absolutely ridiculous. So what happens? You don't want to go messing with those Christians. The rumor gets out. Don't mess with those Christians. They put you between a rock and a hard place. You don't want to mess with them. So in a sense, I think Jesus is teaching street smarts here. Here's how you survive in the streets as a Christian. Yeah, and it seems like he would have to, um, you know, understand certain um, systems and structures that are oppressing people, but also he had to have like that intimate relationship with the people who were being oppressed and know their value was more than, you know, just these oppressed peoples. So is there any people, uh, you know, Sister Terry, as we've talked about, you know, the Bible and a little bit about Jesus, are there any people um, in, in history that you think have modeled and lived by these same principles of Jesus today? Or maybe past oh, Well, yeah, I think for me, it's um, Pope, uh, well, Francis. St. Francis has long been a person for me. I've just always admired uh, how, how committed he was to live the gospel. I mean, if anyone was committed to live the gospel in the very spirit of what Jesus talked about, it was Francis probably to more of an extreme than any of us would choose to do. Um, but then the other would be Pope Francis. And I think for those people who've never heard his story, they, I think there's a Netflix program called Call Me Francis that if you've never seen that, I encourage you to watch it because here is a man who had to really wrestle with some very difficult uh, faith questions you know, where he had to make decisions that were extremely difficult to make in Argentina at the time with what was going on politically, life-threatening things that were going on. I think that formed a lot of who he is. It, it formed a lot of his response to be merciful and kind. Um, so, yeah, and given the complexity, we all have human, you know, we all have our human uh, which I say we have our humanness that we bring to the situation, but I would I would still look Pope Francis up. I think he's great. 
Do you see parallels between um, Pope Francis and St. Francis and how, I guess, Pope Francis's papacy is how he's leading? Yeah, I do. His commitment to the poor, very much so. His commitment to the essence of what scripture, you know, care for your neighbor, care for the vulnerable among you. Yeah, I think he, and he knows that. I think he chose Francis, St. Francis as, uh, because that, because he modeled for him what his own beliefs were. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Sister Terry, um, we've got the easy part out of the interview. Now it's time for the fire round questions. <laughs> These are going to be the most philosophical, the most theological um, <laughs> questions. Um, so we've got, uh, I think, four, four or five questions. Um, try to answer them, you know, as quick off the top of your head as you can. Okay. Right. First question is, the title of our podcast is called The Spirit is Lit. When you hear those words, uh, what comes to mind? Oh, immediately, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20. You know, there is within me something burning like a fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary holding it in, and I cannot. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. To me, the spirit, I mean, the spirit of God, right? That's the passion of God, you know, and that's what I, I think the spirit is about. It, help, it gives us this passion that we burn for God, that we are compelled to search for God, that we animate our lives for God. And it draws us to share our life with God. Yeah. Is that more of a uh, within, I don't know, is that more of within like the Sophia, Sophia um, wisdom spirit tradition? Mm, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Next question is uh, what favorite method of prayer uh, is working, working for you right now? Oh, okay. So for me, contemplation. But the way I do it is I do it walking through the woods. I love to walk in the woods and just be silent in the presence of God. I have found that prayer with words doesn't always work to keep me connected with God. It gets it becomes a distraction. So I like walking with God, having coffee with God, uh, just being present and being. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Sister Terry, we've talked about a little bit about Pope Francis. Um, so far, but if uh, you were Pope for a day, what would you do? <laughs> ordain women. <laughs> I would yeah. ordain women. That's what I would do. <laughs> nice. Yeah. No. All right, Sister Terry, the last most difficult question is this. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? <laughs> Oh, Jacob, I think just enough, whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, we've had a various answers on that one. So that's a good different. Everyone has their different lens, you know, as we're talking <laughs> yeah. about different interpretations of the Tootsie. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Sister Terry, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, it's good to have you on our podcast. Jacob, it's been wonderful to be here with you and to see you after these many years. Uh, good luck with all that you do, and God bless. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care.